Well, here I am. Uh, it's um, October of 2018, and my life is undergoing major transitions. My long marriage is ending. My long participation in my company uh, that I literally uh, started working for or with um, ran out of college in 1987. That That's finishing. And uh, all amicably, I can say, but very hard, you know, hard on the heart, uncertainty about my future, um, loss of a lot of connections. So for this month's podcast, and I'm sorry I missed last month's, I'm not going to sort of be on a script and read you an intro that's long and flowery and explanatory. So I'm going to bring you a piece without much introduction. It's uh, from an appearance on The Sand, that science and non-duality webcast that they held a month ago called The Emergence Series. And it was ready to introduce my voice more widely to the SAND community in preparation for the SAND conference, which is happening in San Jose in two days. And I'll be there and be doing a couple of talks. I hope to bring you uh, the main stage one, which will be on, on Saturday, which is going to be a new kind of, of um, talk for me uh, that I hope I can bring to the Levity Zone about the state of our world and the alarm of um, just the kind of craziness that's coming through psychology or human human minds, memes, a meme stream of very damaging consequence that we just don't need to be doing to ourselves. So with that, I'd like to also thank Christoph, who's been just a trooper in, in helping to edit these recent podcasts, and he took it on to take this one and lay down music tracks, including his own, uh, his own composition, which he titled Becoming Human. Uh, and that's the name of this podcast. That's the theme of sand as being human. But I think perhaps I'm more since about evolution, about becoming human. And he's also mixed in a sort of a backdrop pieces from many other previous Levity Zone contributors and with that, also thanking Rosma for the cover photo. Wonderful picture of me lit by neon lights at Burning Man in a wonderful state of presence. So without further ado, here's becoming human. And let's hope we can all become more, more human. Thank you. again for another episode of the Emergence series. This is our way of kind of gathering the SAND community together between the conferences and having some extra time with our wonderful teachers and speakers. And today we have this absolute pleasure of having the illustrious Dr. Bruce Damer with us. And he will take us on a storytelling journey unlike anything that I'm sure most of us have experienced before. Hi, Bruce. Hi. Really, thank you so much for being with us and, you know, having seen your talks and that epic performance last year at Sand, I'm just so excited to have more story time with you and to learn from your brilliant and, and touching and like totally revolutionary, evolutionary vision and passion and heart. It's just so beautiful to be with you. Thank you so much for having time with us. So welcome. And I can't wait for the story time to begin. Oh, thank you, Vera. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. It means a lot. You know, for your listeners, sometimes out in the cold realms of science, it can be a very, very uh, cold realm. 
you're in a lab, you know, think of all the people that are toiling over genetic sequencing, that are sitting repeating experiments over and over. It can be very soul draining. And to some extent, my heart and my message goes to them to keep going because the work they're doing is soul draining. It's an edge of a ledge that they're, they're traversing. And we all are in a soft, fuzzy world and things just sort of go in a fuzzy way. They're in a prickly world where one mistake in the lab and you've destroyed a, a year's worth of work. Or a, a, an error in a paper where you don't cite a previous paper or you just make a mistake or your, your work is, can't be duplicated by another team. It's very prickly and it's tough. It's almost like a continuous self-examining process where everyone's watching over everyone else. And this is the way it has to be in science because we have to autocorrect or we go off the course. You know, I see uh, Dida talking about uh, wish you'd been my advisor in grad school molecular genetics in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, to come into the softer, gentler world, I'll start with that. The, the, the heart, our hearts can go out to all those that are toiling in jobs that are very repetitive and sort of savage. They're working all night, and this isn't just scientists. This is the engineers, the people who keep keep the city lights on, you know, the people who clean the kitchens uh, that serve us such beautiful food every day. And, and they're working in an environment which is really draining, and uh, they do find meaning for it. So what I want to begin with, since this is the Emergence series, a very special thing happened at SAND last year, and it was very unexpected and very beautiful. After I came off the stage, uh, after my little plenary on the Saturday, the love that Maurizio had was just so stunning. I mean, just, you know, uh, only an Italian can envelop not only you, but an entire room in love so quickly and so effortlessly. So I came off the stage and there in the second row was a, someone I recognized, um, a beautiful friend of mine. And she looked up and she sort of gestured me over and I came over, sitting right next to her was Deepak Chopra. And I'd never met Deepak. I had never met Deepak. And so talking about the softness and the hardness. So Deepak stands at that edge he has sort of, what we might say, uh, put his foot in it many times with scientists and sort of people that are more dialed in and said things. He sort of said things that have offended people, said things that he's had to publicly apologize for. And it's something to do with him feeling not accepted by them somehow. Um, he's come under a lot of criticism. So here I am coming off stage and then I walk over and Deepak looks up and he's like this. And I look through into his eyes, you know, through those big diamond studded glasses. And I see a little boy. I just see a, a little boy looking up. And there's a little bit of fear there. And my heart goes out to him. And that was the beginning of our connection. And I reached my hand forward. I took his hand and said, it's such a pleasure to meet and then his whole system just warmed, just open. And the connection, the connection matters most. The connection is everything. And so what happened as a result of that, as a result of not using sort of a mental judgment or anything like that, it was just a human to human connection. That's where we started. And it started us on a journey together. And he invited me down to San Diego. I haven't gone to his place there yet in Encinitas or wherever it is, uh, I planned to, but we kept trying to get together or something. And then at the Science of Consciousness, it's kind of a, a brother conference to SAND, really, in a way. You know, it's in April, this one was in Tucson. We arranged to meet and Deepak was flying in and I could feel his system in torment, in, in turmoil. I could literally feel this man the night before he flew in. He was doing a serious process. You, know, you, you can do this in a, 
the work that I do with the, the Luminous Awareness Institute, you can do this all non-locally. And of course, all of us know when we're connected to someone who's going through something. You know, this is something, you know, science doesn't try to explain. It, it's almost like we don't believe in it or dis disbelieve in it. We just rely upon it, you know. So his system was rolling. And uh, then in the morning, I felt him being very clear. And he flew in. He arrived. And then there was a banquet. And by that point, I decided to place myself into the field. I decided to, you know, you can either be in mental state and say, well, here I am at TSC and I want to meet this person and that person and achieve something. And that's just sort of planning, right? Or you could just simply be operated by the field and move. And so I spent all of TSC just literally being reflected around the halls of that Lowe's Canyon Resort and in and out and coming to exactly the right place to be meeting these remarkable people. Meeting Jeremy Sherman, for example, was completely remarkable. So I was in tune. I was completely attuned in, into sort of whatever we call this thing. And so when I came into the banquet, one of the big moments happens when people are sitting down at tables, right? And so emotional thing comes in, mental thing comes in. Who, who should I sit next to? It's the one chance that I could sit next to so-and-so, and people are kind of in a nervous flutter that goes through a banquet room. If you notice that when people are sitting, and some people are already pre-reserved there. They must be Catholics, right? Because they pre-reserved their place in heaven. <laughs> Gotta make sure of that. Uh, any Catholics here are laughing. Uh, anyway, I just drifting around, and then I, I wait for signs. The little little quantum marbles, as Vera was calling them. And I wait for the signs. This, this is all real-time stuff. And the sign was, clearly in my vision, someone sat down right in front of me. And there was an empty chair, and the message was, sit down. There's someone sitting down there. I copied them, sat down next to them. You know, no other thinking, just the message was, sit down on this chair, this person sitting down. And I sat down, and a couple of minutes later, I look up, and there's Deepak standing on the other side of the table, that very table. He had come in, and it had positioned him right there. And the person that I just started talking to, I didn't know, next to me, spontaneously got up, without any explanation, went over to Deepak and brought him around the table to me. Talk about the synchronous feel, talk about the choreography. So I didn't stand up, I didn't want to sort of tower over Deepak um, and threaten any kind of little boy. But we shared a gaze and it was so clear. This man had done serious work on himself and gotten clear. He was bright as a bright being, clear and everything. And we looked at each other, we're going to meet tomorrow and it was just delightful. He said, come to my meditation in the morning, which I did. So in some sense, just letting the total human need for connection drive the action led to this beautiful dance. But there's an outcome I'd like to share with you. So in order to put Deepak at ease, well, this is sort of a thing. I mean, when you're a, a public personality, uh, you, you get all kinds of energies and people come at you and you have to build up an armor. And Deepak's done this, but when he's one-on-one -on -one with people, he's so good. And I praised him for this. I said, when, you, when you're one-on-one, -on -one, you're like Jack Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was like this. There could be the janitor at the White House. He gave that janitor his total attention. So whoever was with him, there was no distraction. He was totally present with people. This is why people love Jack Kennedy and they didn't like Nixon and all these other characters, just because Jack Kennedy was completely attentive to people. So I said to Deepak, you have just a beautiful system that when someone comes to you in the front of the line and your whole system changes to match them and to basically somatically simulate their system. And then they are immediately at ease because you know you're a famous personality and and they're nervous. They've been in a line for 20 minutes waiting to be up 
and you're wrong, and there's all kinds of process going on. But he's so accepting, so, I don't know what you even say it, but you just watch it in the body language, and he just said to me, I love connection. And that's really what Deepak is about. It gives him the greatest joy, and it's actually what he's the best at. So we sort of went on that basis, and he's, he said, come to my hotel room here, and, and we'll do a Facebook Live. And I'd never been on Facebook Live. Talk about how archaic I am. But I find out that Deepak not only uses these tools brilliantly, he helped launch Facebook Live. And the day we were doing this in April was the second anniversary of the launch of Facebook Live, of which he was part. And he has special people at Facebook that work to help him because he brought in so much audience and helped test the platform. And so he literally was calling out to the people at Facebook, thanking them for all their support over the years. And there were people tuning in. So who knew that? I mean, who knew that Deepak helped to test and make Facebook Live what it is? So what I did was the following. I brought this out on camera, and you can see it on my camera here. And I handed this to Deepak. What this is, if you can all see, I don't know if you can see, look at those beautiful little curved ridges. This is a rock from Western Australia that is three billion years old. This, this is stromatolites from an area called the Tumbiana, which is in the Pilbara region. And these ridges, those are the fingerprints of microbial communities, microbial mats. Think of the slimy kind of stinky, uh, spongy stuff at the edges of mudflats. And this is called a mudstone. So if I actually look on the back, I'll show you on the back here. See how kind of gray it is? Even the grayness, see the grayness, everybody? That's clay. That's actual clays from three billion years ago. And that these organisms were living on the clay kind of lake shore. And then the uh, water would come and wash up and fold all these mats over and then bury them in more fine clays. And the process of their preservation is called stromatolites, these sort of domical structures. They use those clay grains, those sand grains, to build cement foundations under them so that they can have access to sunlight. So they're doing what we're doing today when we build buildings, and we do all of our work. We're building structures to keep ourselves going. And these guys were building these towers of rock, and they, they still do it. In many places in the world, stromatolites are still around, so that they're living on the tops of these towers so they can go toward the light and the light can continue to feed them. And so I handed this to Deepa. And when he took this, there was not only a connection with me, but for him, a connection with something very important, which was science itself. Here I was, I could be in his mind, maybe a hard-nosed reductionist. Uh, maybe not believing in panpsychism or whatever, but it didn't matter. You know, I, I'm not sure I'm a hard-nosed reductionist, but I have to put a reductionist hat on to do this work. But I, when I handed this to Deepak, he took it, he explained to his audience what this was. It created a connection with, with science for him, that he could do the explaining. And not only that, I can't even repeat it, but he said, wasn't the first organism a crypto-chemo-thermophilic... He had the whole thing down, you know, endolith. And he had the science. He, he had a beautiful description of the first uh, bacteria that we know of. And so then there was this whole thing of connection and of acceptance. And so, in a sense, that's what softened everything. And what my goal, if I had a goal, was to make a connection with Deepak, uh, just to have a human connection. Uh, and I actually was, this is very funny for you, I was trying to some degree to introduce some of the topics I love to talk about, which is the healing arts, 
know, the art of being human. He didn't want to go there, right? He wanted to steer it back, you know, to the Scientific American article just come out. He wanted me to dial in the nerdy stuff. Deepak did, um, which is sort of funny because, you know, he's in the healing arts, <laughs> Ayurveda and everything. But this is the point I was trying to get to all this time. Why this is important for the Emergence series here at Sand, something's emerging here in this connection. And I feel very light about it. And that was after we turned off Facebook Live and there had been 25,000 people. It was amazing. I've never seen so many hearts come flowing up a screen. Especially when we went into heart space, then the hearts flowed. It was like real time. It was a real time connection. It was a real time feel that was going on. After that, he turned to me and said, I'm starting a project about emergence, and I'd like you to be a part of it. And I said, well, what, what is it? He said, I want to assemble and support the best scientists and philosophers, mathematicians, computer scientists, AI specialists, like hard-nosed, gearhead type of people, but also philosophers, some spiritual leaders, but mostly based on the figuring out of what emergence is. You know, emergence is the most amazing property of the cosmos. And it starts simple with stars and the formation of heavier elements, but then it really takes off when life comes. And this has been my whole practice to figure out how life began. And he invited me to be part of it. And I said, it would just be an honor to be a part of it. And he also said, I just want to be a, a fly on the wall and maybe a gadfly on the wall and just observe. I want to make a contribution. I'm 71 years old and it's time to really make a, a contribution. How beautiful this is that this man who has felt in some sense estranged from science for one of the, the last couple of things that he wants to do in his life is to provide resources and a container to make a contribution to uh, human knowledge and support all these colleagues so that they can do it and just basically be a caring container for it and make a contribution to science or to complexity theory or whatever. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful coming together after sort of a rough ride for him. And, and it's also, uh, it's a gift that I think he's going to give. So I, I wrote to him, I don't know, three weeks ago, saying, how's it going? Because he's sold a number of his companies. I think he's, he's like unloading his world so that he can really focus on the things that he thinks really matters. He's trying to find other people to do that work. And he said, it's happening slowly but surely. Let's sit down at sand and talk. So I thought... So it, this is a really great advertisement for sand too. <laughs> You have to have Deepak and Bruce in the room together. So, from the heart. yeah, this is what the sand community is about. This is what it's about. Who knows? I mean, who knows what will emerge from that? Human origins maybe would be a, a good place to go. Well, the way you weave together all of this, all of the, the cosmology and the evolutionary streams of thought and the and science and the and this spirit and the way in which you, you're such a visionary, really. And I don't use the word lightly. You, you receive visions, and I think I think actually the, the learning about how that process, what the process is like for you in being that intimate with reality, being that intimate with life and how life transmits to you so much of you of what then becomes a foundation for your scientific work. I really found that fascinating in our exchange. I was wondering if you would say some, something about that, how it's not just reductionist science for you and never has been. Well, you know, um, it, it all started one day in the spring of 1976, which seems like so long ago. I was walking out in the beautiful sagebrush hills near where I was raised in a place called Kamloops, uh, which is a, a Shuswap uh, Indian name, which means meaning of the waters. 
It's a little community uh, in central British Columbia. It's a beautiful place. It's an absolutely wonderful community. And it's at the, the last of the pocket desert. It's the desert that starts from southern Chile and goes all the way up the spine of North and South America, uh, the Great Cordilleran Desert. And it breaks in uh, Panama. But it's truly the longest desert. And we lived at the very, very top of it before it, it converted over to boreal forest. So Arctic forest all the way to the Arctic Circle. This amazing transitional zone. So as kids, we could go up into the spruce, like very severe winters, 50, 55 below, doing snowshoeing in the winter. But then we'd come to our town, which had sagebrush and little tiny prickly pear cactuses and some rattlesnakes. And it could be, uh, you know, 100 degrees or 45 degrees Celsius in the summer. So there I was in this beautiful liminal zone walking along and I saw a mariposa lily coming out of the ground. And it, it's a trillium, so it comes out and there's sort of three, I can't do this with my fingers, there's sort of three uh, beautiful uh, things coming out. And it's a beautiful color and it's one of the first things to erupt out of the frozen uh, soils. And I thought, well, this is a beautiful structure. What made this structure from a simpler start, which would have been a bulb, is these are perennials. And I thought, this is at 14 years old, I thought, wow, that's an interesting question. What is the program or the code that is running that makes this trillium? It's so complex from a simpler start. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Were you already a scientific kid? Did this come out of nowhere, or were you already leaning in that direction? I, I think I was a like a I think I was like a, a naturalist. I was really interested in nature and the structure of the bones of the earth and geology and where clays would form. And I was extremely hooked on everything to do with that. And I thought of the sagebrush as a small forest because the sagebrush grow like little oak trees. And if you're walking up, it's like you're flying above them. So I thought of myself as some kind of an extraterrestrial visitor to this planet of this miniature forest. Uh, so then I stood up, and since I was about nine, I felt I wouldn't use my rational thinking brain to direct me. Uh, in, in some circumstances I would, but for the most part not. Because I thought, ah, the rational thinking brain just can't figure it out. There's a bigger system that uh, is much smarter. And when I was nine also, I used to do these experiments where if you're a little kid and you, you have a very stimulating day, if any of you remember being a little kid or you have kids, they have a very stimulating day and they close their eyes for a nap to go to sleep. There's usually a lot of color and stuff flashing there. Because I've asked many, many people, and they say, oh, that even still happens to me. I close my eyes, and there's all this kind of movement and color and washes going on behind me. And I open my eyes, and there's no lights on. But this happens. Well, when I was a kid, we had a black and white TV, but our neighbors had a color TV, which I watched the moon launches on. And for me, these flashes were like the most brilliant color I'd ever seen. Better color TV than these Viking TVs that seem to be only in three colors. Uh, in 1969, so this is when I was seven or eight. And I would do a practice where, like, what interferes with these patterns? Oh, if I start drifting off uh, or going to sleep, then they'll go away because I've gone to sleep. I go into another world. If I start thinking or worrying uh, or thinking about a thing I need to do or something, whew, they go. So what if I shut all that off? What if I become completely present to this movement and completely an appreciation of it and observing it. And I minimize myself down so that the thing that is me is very tiny. It's just doing like this. Just observing, just like I'm doing right now. Yeah, it feels good. <laughs> it feels really good to do that. So if I became that little sphere a little crystal sphere where things would go through it and I didn't mind. Then these things just opened up into fantastic landscapes and worlds. It's just like, Whoa. Um, and it could just go and go, you know. 
So that was sort of entertainment, you know, it's my, my channel, my, my entertainment channel. And then I go to sleep, you know, because eventually you just go to sleep. So that converted for me into vivid internal worlds. So I could sort of flip a switch. I'd be mowing the lawn or I'd be walking or something and I could, I could be in my huge space world uh, where civilizations are moving. It's super complex. And then I could draw these out. So I was super bored at school. So I would, instead of taking notes, I would draw incredible cityscapes that would start off with an island that would then have a colonizing force come in and then the first few huts. And I would draw it from overhead and it would take weeks to populate this single sheet of paper. And I found that if I looked at that sheet of paper, I heard everything the teacher said. So when the teacher is doing the lesson about such and such, I'm up in this corner filling in this piece. I have the complete uh, lecture in my head if I just look at that piece. So to study for the test, I just looked at the drawing. I had no notes. And my handwriting was terrible. I couldn't really do cursive handwriting. <laughs> I got busted one day. The teacher came, you know how they look, and uh, oh, he's just drawing, he's just sloughing off. I was making a pattern map. I was making a complete map, associative, uh, two-dimensional, almost three-dimensional map of that entire knowledge space that I could just recall in a flash. And that kept going and going and going. And so the, the moment I was looking at that beautiful trillium bulb that was coming up, what I would see in my mind was different. I would start visualizing the whole soil, the bulb, I would start doing prediction and almost casting my mind directly into the bulb and watching the process happen. Now, of course, this is imagination, and imagination reaching into the machination of nature. And I didn't know if it was accurate, but my mind was running a simulation of the bulb unfolding and pushing the material up and growing the cells. So I was always doing these types of, of simulations. So then I sort of got caught up in that for a bit and I kept walking and I kept flying over the landscape and, and looking at different plants and all the, how they must be doing this process. And then one day or one moment in this process, I thought, uh, wow, they're all running codes. I wonder if there's a common code. I wonder what the original code was. What was the first code that led to these, which because they all obviously came from one thing. And maybe I'd read something, or we didn't have much TV, but maybe I'd seen a TV show about Albert Einstein. And when Albert Einstein was 16, he did thought experiments, and he wrote about them later. The most famous one that he did was he dreamed himself, and this is a waking dream. Uh, I call them endogenous journeying now. It's almost like an endogenously produced flush of a dream molecule, if you will, and they get very vivid. And his dream was that he was running alongside a beam of light, and he was casting his eyes this way to not disturb it. So he was maintaining himself as the sphere, as the observer. He was able to do this, and he watched as the waves compressed and did this whole thing. And that led to special relativity in 1904, 1905. Gedanken experimented, he called them. It turns out there's this long tradition of this in science. An angel stood on Descartes' shoulder, whispering into his ear, saying, it's number and measure that you will use to master or to understand nature. So that's why we all have Cartesian plots, XY plots, you know. Uh, Newton was a complete mystic. Newton's just off the scale if you read the histories. You know, practically everyone in the Royal Society were mystics, too. Uh, what characters? Oh, my God. 17th and 18th century. Uh, they were all sort of at this boundary of, well, the English might call it madness, but it was really just a connection with the field. People would take signs to guide them, but they had an intellect and an intelligence that the signs weren't throwing them off into superstitious kinds of things. They were looking for what is the process by which water boils and gas expands. You know? So 
so they would blow things up at the Royal Society's little research place there. So then it turns out that there's a lot of this in science, and the arts is dominated by this, I mean, the muse. So, you know, at age 14, I thought, okay, well, science is done by thought experience. Informed thought experience is how it's done. And so as I was walking back toward the house at Aerostone Drive, where most of my life was spent, I stood up and felt something coming on. And it turns out that Albert Einstein, when things came to him, they came through the body. Now, people think of him with his crazy hair out to here as like the ultimate in head case, right? But he's got his tongue stuck out, right? So he's an embodied being, played the violin. He's a very heartfelt being. But his scientific discoveries, he describes his body shaking and a thing coming up through the body, which is the knowing. So it came from here not from the sort of ethereal realms or from math. He described himself as being terrible at math, which is hard to believe. And they would just erupt from the whole earth. They were coming through. I wasn't a very embodied being. I was given up at birth. And this has been my main process in my whole life, is to establish the thread back to mother's love and to re-experience the birth process and to track it at every stage and to somatically embody that. It's been a lifetime quest. But in front of me suddenly uh, was a question. It came to my mind as a question was, where did all this come from? Where was the original bulb? There had to be an original bulb. And then I had read a little bit about chemistry and it's the stick and ball diagram. that move around somehow. So the stick and ball diagrams are only a cartoon of what they are. They're much more significant and sophisticated. And then suddenly one of them appeared in front of my mind's eye. And this had never happened sort of this way. You know, I'd done so much of previous work, but it never had appeared. And it was moving around. It felt to me like an entity. Like, oh, hello. <laughs> Something showed up, almost like a teacher. And I, I now remember, it happened the moment that I committed my life to this problem. I committed my life. I said, I am committing 90 years. I'm lucky and I live to over 100. I'm committing 90 years to working on this mystery, the origin of life. And as soon as that happened, it appeared. Because in some sense, I'd opened the probability channel. I had made the commitment, and therefore I was worth committing something back to from the field. And this seething ball of molecules was there. And I tried to watch what it was doing. I'm now in the gearhead mode trying to figure out, okay, it's not just molecules floating around. There's action happening. What is the action? Either driven externally or internally, what is going on with this machine? I figured, well, I'll ask it. How did everything start? And it basically pointed at me figuratively and said, figure out how I made a copy of myself. Figure out how I made a copy of myself. And my little 14-year-old brain flashed to the neighbor that has this British sports car called the TR7, which I thought was very cool because it's wedge-shaped. I thought, well, that's the coolest machine in the neighborhood, and you're a machine, and machines are made in bigger machines called factories. And I don't see a factory making you. You're just sitting there. You're just de novo. There's no machine making you. So it's not, not possible for you to make a copy of yourself without a bigger machine. And it winked. He gave me a little wink and a nod. He said, I'll work on it. And so that was the, the initial thought experiment that 38 years later led to the full download. I ran five or six parallel tracks in my life, five or six parallel careers, if you will. And one of them was always this Biota initiative. I call it Biota because that's the institute that I'm founding now, biota.org, to actually do the science and test this hypothesis. For this Biota mission, I went to the Burgess Shale, and in 97, I took a group up there. And we climbed up with 60 people to the Burgess Shale to look at the greatest fossil evidence for soft-bodied creatures 535 million years ago when bodies came into being and exploded. You find 
things that could swim with flaps. You find all these organisms and whole ecosystem that is called the Cambrian explosion. And then I co-organized that same conference series in Cambridge at Modlin College, Cambridge. And Richard Dawkins came and Douglas Adams came to speak. Uh, and I had tea with Richard Dawkins in his drawing room in Oxford. I'm going back to Oxford. I hope to see him again in November. But we had tea and uh, I proposed that the origin of life might be solved by computer. If there were many teams in a competition every year. And I want to go back to him and not just show him this rock, but that we now have a, a hypothesis, a cycling system that's working in the lab and it now is working in hot springs in the field. It's potentially an engine of emergence. So this has happened. And in the 30 or almost 40 years, halfway through this project now, the complete vision just came to me. First, initially in pieces, in thought experiments, in endo journeys, endo trips. And then I met Dave Deemer, UC Santa Cruz, who's a great chemist. He's one of the great membrane biophysicists in the world and a complete gentleman. He invented uh, nanopore sequencing, which is being marketed by Oxford Nanopore. And the company's worth about $2 billion at the moment. It's a little handheld thing called the Minion that you can connect to a laptop and you can sequence genomes. It's a complete breakthrough technology. And the little thread of polymer called RNA or DNA is pulled through a pore in a membrane, and there's a clicker that creates a voltage difference across the membrane and tells you what base just went through. It's the greatest ever device to go from the analog world of chemistry into the pure digital world in real time. And that's Dave's invention. So Dave mentored me. So here you have this unformed being that had mostly computer science training, so I understood how operating systems worked and booted up. But I didn't have the chemistry training, so Dave actually took me under his wing, and twice a month for six years we had tea and read papers and talked about the field and the politics and worked out our approach. And that's so important. There are many people who have brilliant ideas or flashes of insights, but if they don't have mentorship to shape it and to put it into realistic terms, it just becomes this out-of-control ideation, which our society has a lot of. And, and this is why I appreciate science so much. It's because it's like, okay, let's draw a box. Let's test that hypothesis. Or, even better still, let's attempt to falsify it. And several times in the work Dave and I did, we almost falsified our approach which is taking the little membranous vesicles that we were so carefully making in solution and cycling down into the dry state that would then polymerize our RNA polymers and then put them into the wobbly capsules of lipid, which is basically like a primitive cell. And then those would survive the, the wet cycle, come down and form a gel that would then dry down and refuse into layers and then between the layers would be the, the polymers which would then grow in length because the polymers came back. They didn't get lost into the water. They came back and they got lengthened and lengthened and lengthened and lengthened. So Dave had discovered a way that nature could make the biopolymers of life without having the tool set that life uses which are called polymerases. And it worked not only for uh, nucleic acids, it also worked for peptides. You know, little short proteins. So he had discovered this, and my great thought experiment one night, which was one morning after doing breath work. Breath work helps, I'll tell you. It really helps to activate flashes of insight. Any kind of a practice helps. I saw it. I, I became it. I, I fell into the pool, into the stone-lined pool in the hot spring, and I became those protocells that were cycling, and I saw how they coupled together, how they dumped the polymers between the wet phase to the moist phase to the dry phase to the wet phase, and I became it, and then, then the thought experiment took me over, and it, it cycled trillions of times and showed me how those little stringy polymers, which initially are random, they're like random tools that don't do anything, they get selected to do jobs. And the first job is stabilize the bubble that I'm in. You can stabilize that bubble, you survive for the next round. And that's actually what life is still doing. You know, we have a good breakfast, we take care of our bodies, 
you try to reproduce so that the bubble of the body continues as long as it can to then create another generation of bubbles. This is the living process. In my thought experiment, I saw how cycling hot spring-connected pools pulsed by hot water in a natural laboratory, like you'd see at Yellowstone, blurped and lifted the function of the living world out of the background. And I saw the functional polymers. I saw the first pore-forming polymer, the main little pore. I saw the first structural polymer. I saw the first metabolic systems going like a Stuart-Kaufman cycle. I saw it all, and then I saw how a community of protocells would share these innovations, how they would come down to a little sludge at the bottom of the pool and form a network where products over here get shared through the membranes over to the thing over here. And then I realized later, this is the ancestor. This is the ancestor of this stromatolite, the microbial mat. And its ancestor was not an individual, it was a community. That the root of the tree of life is a community, a simple form of community. And that the network effect of things working together and sharing and cooperating is more powerful than the degrading effect of the second law of thermodynamics, is tearing everything apart constantly. And so, to wrap up this story for you, when I saw the the wink uh, in the molecule's eye back that day in 1976, where I thought, this is implausible, you can't make a copy of a big machine without another bigger machine. It turns out that it's a network of little machines. With the network of collaborating little machines has the power itself to become a bigger and more complex machine. It's a ratchet that lifts up and up and up. And that that's what Carl Rose called the progenote. He found the progenote. He found the pathway to the food up phase of the living world. And we should, within a couple of generations, this is what the Biota Institute's for, build even synthetic bio, simple de novo systems in the lab to watch these gels form and grow in size and then crash and then restart and grow again and adapt what's called molecular or chemical evolution, going toward what would eventually become a living, self-sustaining system. And we should be able to, in this century, watch our ancestry in action, watch how we were made. So halfway through, so we're 40 years in, the thought experiment came, and the answer, in a sense, came to all of us, because as a species, we've gone through this very, very toxic and dangerous myth of separation for the last, I wouldn't say it's 2,000 years, but there were elements of it 2,000 years ago. When we came out of tribalism, when we came out of living in the, in the rainforest or living in tribal groups, and individuals got isolated somehow. Maybe it was the physical landscape, maybe groups got isolated because of glacier movement or something, and they got estranged from other groups. And then that was hard enough, but when people got estranged from their communal group, young males got maybe sent away for doing bad things, and then you have this isolation thing, which is very, very hard on a social animal. But in the last 500 years, we created a culture of separation, and, and we're in it. And, you know, perhaps in the West since the 60s, since the boundary-dissolving elixirs of that time. Uh, uh, we were just last night at Ken Kesey's house here in La Honda. If you remember Ken Kesey, you weren't there. So this is the house where this famous author who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and he wrote Sometimes a Great Notion, I think. World-famous author in 1961 bought a house just over the hill here and started doing uh, his brand of acid tests experimenting with the then legal and considered to be a wonder drug of LSD being used all throughout psychiatry and being researched. And he managed to get some through the VA hospital, something to do with Stanford. So he got a supply of this and invited the Hells Angels for a social engagement. And the Hells Angels, uh, which were fairly new, I think they were in Gilroy, had never been invited socially anywhere. <laughs> 
and they came roaring in their bikes over Woodside Road, over 84, and they came down and they parked on that curve where we were last night, and they parked their bikes, and there were cops there already because Kesey's parties were pretty renowned, and the cops didn't know what to do about it. So they just parked at a distance. The cops saw the Hells Angels coming, whoa, you know. And the Hells Angels go into this house where we were standing last night. Terry Adams gave us this most amazing tour and showed us the original prankster artifacts that are still there. Uh, they go in, and there's a whole scene going on. I know we're off topic. I mean, we're on topic, finally. Um, it's a juicy topic. It's fresh because we were just there at a prankster party wearing our prankster uh, colors. So anyway, the Hells Angels come in, and they're nervous because no one's ever invited them socially <laughs> to their home. <laughs> Why would you? And there are all these white Anglo-Saxon kids, Kesey was the oldest, standing up on tables, doing their form of play acting that Kesey loved. And it was a kind of theater, complete spontaneous theater, while on very strong acid from Sandoz Labs via the U.S. government, probably, in this case. It had gotten out, it had escaped, and this was happening. So then the Hell's Angels were encouraged to, you know, take a little drink of Kool-Aid. And who knew what was going to happen? Because these are guys that, when they get activated, they're smashing chairs over each other's heads, right? What happened to the Hell's Angels that night was they sat in a line. They felt some change. They felt a profound shift occur. And these are people who are shit disturbers. They would bring terror into towns just by riding their bikes through. And they sat down and they became Buddhists. Kind of like the Tara behind me. They became the completely present Buddhists. Because that's what the medicine did for them. That's what the magic did for them. And that's the place they wanted to go. Because they were never there. So the white kids, they were just becoming expressive. Hell's Angels were already expressive. They already had a role. They would roll into your town and break up your, your bar. You know, they already did that. They were already very public. But they never had a chance to become. And this is a Hells Angel later told me. The Hells Angel told me was, understand, in Hells Angel, there is angel. So that's where they went. That's where they went. And uh, what happened was you know, this Dionysian return, this Eleusinian return, you know, the, the great Eleusinian mystery school, which probably launched civilization. The Greeks, for 16, 1700 years, in the Eleusinian plain, the villagers at Eleusis ran a temple complex. And its eventual form was an enormous sunken structure called the Telesterion. The Telesterion, what a name, right? And every September, People came from all over the Mediterranean, a thousand at a time, to go through the Lesser Mysteries, which was preparation of body and soul to go and experience the Greater Mystery, which remained a mystery. So we've only been able to piece that together. But they would arrive in Athens by boat, mostly, wearing the same simple robes. They would get basically stripped down. They would be on a strict diet, there would be no social class differences visible. Then, after months of the Lesser Mysteries, celebrated by the citizens of Athens, they would walk in a line up to the Eleusinian Plain. And you can take a bus there these days. There's a museum there. And they would go across a narrow bridge, too narrow for wheeled conveyance, only for people. And on either side of the bridge, the locals would catcall them and critique them to break their last division, the last division from others, like the proud noble person was taken down by the old man who said, soon enough you'll be a crooked old man like me, you know, so don't feel you're better than your peers. They went into the temple complex and for nine days, it was kind of like a Burning Man, but way more dialed in than Burning Man. All we know is it was an incredible ecstatic dance. It was an incredible connection with art, with sound healing. I mean, the Telesterion was built for sound healing. It's this most massive structure with facets in it, kind of like 
the Inca were doing in Mesoamerica with his incredible sound chambers. They knew the power of sound. And then on the ninth day, the initiates would come into the Telesterion and sit along the edge of it. And coming down would be women dancing with these pots on their heads. And on the pots were little cups and they would be turning and turning. And then the hierophants would hand the cups to the individuals who were sitting along the bench. And I have a little piece of stone that a friend of mine secreted out of Eleusis from that bench seat. And I take it places when I tell this story and I pass it around. There's a little shell in it because it's a little piece of the old Mediterranean uplifted. And I said, you know what? Julius Caesar or Cleopatra could have taken a leak on this stone because they were all initiated at Eleusis. So Eleusis actually booted up civilization. It booted up our origins from the Upper Paleolithic, from tribal culture. And the way it did it is that something in this cup, some mixture called the Kaikion, and Albert Hoffman thought it was a derivative of LSD from the ergot smuts on the barleys. Uh, Gordon Wasson thought it was uh, mushrooms, psilocybe or cubensis or something that was used as the original host. Later replaced by the Catholic Church when uh, early leaders smashed the temple. They hired Alaric to literally break the bones of the temple in 396 and destroy it to put their new system in place. It's a very diabolical piece of history, a uh, real transition. So here you are, you've taken this drink, you're sitting on this bench, and then what Plato described as a light that was an immaculate light, an ineffable light, an indescribable light came up into the Telesterion. And the Mediterranean peoples interpreted that this was the light of Persephone returning from Hades to bring life to the earth. I feel emotional about it because it opened the mind and the heart and the soul of 300,000 years of tribalism, which was fairly brutal. I mean, let's face it, this is why I asked San to put the beautiful ape's face in the art of the podcast. That being went through so much. That being had his brains bashed in a billion times and died horribly through conflict with other groups and then through mating and unification with other groups and sharing. But life in Africa was not easy. We went through six, seven, eight million years of it. After the continent split, after the Rift Valley dried out one half, and then the continent became almost completely desert, and our ancestors were forced into South Africa and barely made it. The Blombos Caves are where you find evidence of the first modern humans over 100,000 years ago. And they barely made it, and their struggles as they came into consciousness and heart and soul and art. You can see this in the Blombos Caves. You can see the first art. And as mitochondrial Eve herself, the great mutant that is the mother of us all, that has the mitochondrial DNA that we all share, so we come from one woman. She rose in that milieu. And her genes somehow survived and conquered the world. And then the women were domesticated and pushed underground. I get emotional about all this. But the good news is, after all this, and after coming into a period where we're separated, where we discovered the pain of separation, Ram Dass talks about this a lot, we're actually coming back together. It is an archaic revival. It is ancient future. It really is happening. It's happening all around us. It's happening. And this is what we must move toward. It's like it's so simple. It's, a, it's our path and, and everything we do, I mean, our, our, our science will be better, our hearts will be healed, our world will be better if we move toward each other. And if we know how we began, we know what our ancestry is and how we were made, well, I think we now know this engine of emergence or creation. I think we can see it. And it's a huge revelation. It's, one of the largest spiritual revelations we'll ever have. Is there any way that we as a community or individuals can be of help to your research or to you in any way? 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely, I mean, it really has come down to just Dave and I at UC Santa Cruz and uh, colleagues over the world that are very little funding. Uh, if you have chemistry skills, uh, we can give you experiments to run with very low-cost reagents. Uh, you can do things in the field. It's uh, You can be involved. I mean, this is not literally not rocket science. It, it, it literally can be done in the kitchen, uh, and sometimes it is. Uh, so, well, reach out. Is there a place to reach out? Is there a way to, you know, would you want someone's, is there a way that that can be helpful for you together? I mean, in what way could that be? Yeah, I mean, you can certainly write to me at, at bruce at damer.com. Uh, uh, we have the biota.org, which we're, we're standing up an institute where we're trying to raise, hopefully, a good size endowment from a, a high net worth individual who would like to have their name on one of the great questions in science. Uh, so if, uh, if you know someone who can write lots of zeros on checks or make a big PayPal payment, uh, they will have funded a, a truly grand uh, effort that will help all of humanity, equivalent to seeing the Earth from space.